Miss our kids to children's ministry. You may be seated. Apologize for the dim room. Please don't fall asleep. I realize that some of that's up to me, by the way. I'll do my best. The bulb in our projector has uh, decided to not go on any longer. It's slowly giving up. And so we didn't know that when we started gathering this morning. So we'll get a new bulb ordered and it'll be back to brightness next week. You'll open up your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 29. We've been talking about money. We've been talking about our stewardship of the money that God allows to come into our lives. And I've been operating rather deeply in my soul on one important piece of advice I received years ago. And I really think this advice makes a huge difference in relationships and all sorts of ways that I view other people. And that piece of advice was never ascribe to malice what can be explained by stupidity. You know, it's, it's one thing to look at the, the, the giving or lack thereof that's present in the American Christian's life and ascribe malice, like to ascribe selfishness and so forth. And listen, I'm not saying you aren't selfish. I'm not saying that we don't do selfish things. Of course we do. But man, there's, there's another piece involved in our understanding of why we often come up short to meet the standard of radical generosity we see in the scriptures, and that honestly could be more related to just plain old ignorance. That's what Proverbs 29 has in mind when it says in verse 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So the concept of casting off restraint here is the idea of running wild, of lacking intentionality and order. It's it's sort of the opposite of doing something on purpose. It's actually tied in in the Hebrew to the idea of crazy hair. You know how uh, you know how churches have like special Sundays every once in a while, like it's you know high attendance Sunday or bring a neighbor Sunday. All of my ministry, I've wanted to do bedhead Sunday. Where the rule is simple, like, like come, you can't touch your hair. Like, when you wake up, that's the hair you have when you come to church, right? So everybody arrives with hair in its most natural state. And I, I, I think that would be really cool. It would increase, like, transparency and authenticity. But I also, I also happen to think that there's a few guys that I love to death here who don't have hair. And you would feel really good about yourselves, on Bedhead Sunday, you'd be like, hey, every, every Sunday is Bedhead Sunday for me. But that concept in Proverbs 2019 of casting off restraint is tied to that idea of being untamed, unwieldy, uh, a lack of intentionality and purpose, sort of running wild. So it says, where there is no prophetic vision, people run wild. What's the, what's the idea behind this phrase, prophetic vision? Well, you've probably heard this verse before, but you've probably heard it most often quoted in the King James Version, where it simply says, where there is no vision, people cast off restraint, or where there is no vision, people perish. And you might have heard it, honestly, uh, you might have heard it when a pastor's trying to sell you on a new building (laughs) or a new program. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the worst thing that someone could do. That's, That's a vision, and it might indeed be a good vision. But I think as the ESV puts it, we see more clearly what vision is being described in this passage. 
And it says prophetic vision, which what we're really talking about here is not just any old vision, uh, even if it's a good one. What we're really talking about in Proverbs 29 is, is biblical vision. It's, 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 it, it's, the parallelism in the text shows what it means. And it says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Now that parallelism that's so common in Hebrew literature tells us that what he means by prophetic, prophetic vision, he's also connecting to the word law. And, and he's using the word law here just to mean Bible. So what we're really seeing in this passage is, is that when we don't know what God teaches on a particular subject, we tend to lack intentionality. We tend to run wild. We tend to go along with our baser instincts. That's what the verse means. When we lack clarity about what God wants on a subject, we tend to run wild and goofy in that particular subject. And you could put a specific object in the middle of this verse, and you kind of get a sense of, of how that works. So, for instance, where there is no prophetic vision for sexuality, the people cast off restraint. Right? Makes sense? Where there's no prophetic vision for speech, the people cast off restraint. So think about it in a marriage that has a lot of fighting. Like what's going on there practically usually is at some point that the, the, the husband and or the wife or the wife and or the husband have lost a prophetic vision for what God expects out of their speech. And so instead of actually restraining their speech in a, in a helpful way, they let their speech run wild. And, and that's because... First of all, because they're sinners and I like to run wild. But secondly, because they really, in that moment, don't have a prophetic vision. They don't have clarity about what God expects out of their speech. It's not real to them. Well, so that's an important job for preaching, right? I mean, this verse, one of the things this verse does is it puts the emphasis or the responsibility on the preacher, on the teacher, in a different way. It puts an emphasis on the spiritual leader. Uh, People run wild for two reasons. They're related. You can be running wild for both of them. But the first reason you would run wild, the first reason you'd be untamed, uh, unintentional, is because you're a sinner, your deeds are evil, and you don't like God's standard. The Bible's clear about that, right? But there's another reason that we forget about, and, and it has to do with what Jesus is feeling when it says that he looked at the crowd and saw that they were harassed and confused like a sheep without a shepherd. So the first reason that people run wild is because they're sinners and they like to. But there's another reason this verse gets to, and that is sometimes we run wild because we're ignorant. Because we don't have a prophetic vision. And so I like this verse because I, I, I like the emphasis it places on the responsibility of the teacher slash preacher to provide a prophetic vision that gives people order and understanding on how they're supposed to live their lives. And obviously, there's always pressure against a preacher slash teacher to not do that in particular areas, right? But guys, listen, long before, because I've grown up through the whole sexual revolution thing, at least the second chapter of it, uh, long before preachers felt pressured to not talk about the Bible's vision for sexuality, long before they felt pressure to not do that, they felt pressure to not talk about the Bible's vision for money. Uh, the truth is, is that 
if you've grown up in the church, you have almost certainly been ill-served by a relative minimization or lack of clear, consistent, authoritative, unapologetic teaching about what God wants you to do with the money that he's placed in your life. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, and one of them being that some people will not appreciate that. They will leave. They, they will not stand for that kind of specificity. But, you know, that's, that's true of some people, but most people, they want to know what God wants them to say. They're, they're here for a reason. They want to know what God wants them to do. They want clarity. They want prophetic vision. And so what we're going to do today is see how essential prophetic vision is to a proper understanding and relationship with the money that God has placed in our lives. We've been talking about this in one way or another for a while, and we have begun to pull together bits and pieces throughout the scripture that are beginning to form God's vision for our money. And one of the things we've seen very clearly is is that God has an expectation that we care for the poor. That's one thing. And we've also seen that God expects that God has a pretty clear definition of what the poor and needy are. We talked about that last week. And, and, And in that regard, as we saw last week, as we see God's definition of what poor and needy is, we see that, that, that God makes a strong distinction between our wants and our needs. And another thing we've seen is that God clearly expects people to work to provide for their own needs whenever possible. So those are some of the things that we've seen. We're beginning to get a vision for money that comes from the scriptures. Let me summarize that in three statements. Uh, Three statements that give you some sense of... Well, before I do that, actually, go back uh, to the previous slide. I did want to hit one, one point. So uh, one of the things that, that I've seen, back when I was a kid growing up in the church, it was pretty common for, for, for there to be Democrats and Republicans, both in a Bible-believing church. And many times, the difference was simply their view of how the poor should be cared for. Uh, things have radically changed uh, over the years. It's far less common especially given the Democratic Party's insistence, uh, vocal declaration of uh, fierce advocacy for abortion. But, but growing up, there were, there were just different views of how to care for the poor. And as I've walked, in the, uh, walked with and worked in the church for most of my lifetime, I've seen one area of disunity I do want to address uh, that, that, that might be helpful to you. It, it seems to me that there are some Christians who place a great deal of emphasis on number one care for the poor, care for the poor, care for the poor. But they themselves lack care for the poor in one important area, and that is they themselves are far more vocal toward the church's responsibility to care for the poor than they are vocal to the poor's responsibility to work. And and what what I'm trying to help you to see is, is the Bible doesn't make one more important than the other. They're both God's commands. They're both important. And, and let's be honest, it's far easier to appeal to a middle-class Christian to give a little bit more of their income than it is to appeal to certain people who are poor, who don't want to work. So, so let's we take the whole data together. And we understand God's emphasis that the poor should provide for their own needs if they are capable of doing so is just as strong, just as pronounced as God's emphasis that the church care for the poor. 
And so we wouldn't want to emphasize one of those over the other. And that many times, if we are de-emphasizing calling the poor to work, we're actually not helping them at all. Because one of God's basic means of care for the human soul is a productive work life. So it's, it's easier, because we'll listen and we're far more pliable, it's easier to tell the Christian they should give more than it is to guide someone in generational poverty into real employment, into, into valuing work. It's easier to get the average Christian to give a little bit than it is to guide someone who's lived in generational poverty through the basics of gainful employment. But if we don't do that, we're not obeying God's word, and we're really not helping them. Employment work is an essential feature of God's plan for humanity, and it really matters a lot, and it's really important to express care for people who aren't working now by encouraging them to obey God's common law to all humanity that we work to meet our own needs. So that's just one area where you can see that if we really pay attention to what God says, our we kind of transcend all the political polarization. We kind of have a both-and view as it relates to caring for the poor. We see that God's command in, say, Isaiah 58 is clear. You should care for the poor. If you don't, you're not right with me. But we also see God's command throughout Scripture that if a man does not work, let him not eat. And if we emphasize both of those, we wind up with something very different than what we see in either political party. All right, so let's just summarize everything we've learned so far about money into three statements. Number one, God wants you to work to provide for your own needs. Number two, if you work hard, you will usually wind up earning more than what your needs require. And this is that differentiation between needs and wants, needs and desires. And number three, God wants you to spend all of that excess money on your desires. I'm not joking. It's actually, like, true. That's what God wants. Uh, God wants you... God wants you to work hard to provide for your own needs. If you do work hard, you'll earn more money than what you need. You're going to have money left over. That's discretionary income. And God wants you to spend all of that on what you desire. And I'm going to give you four reasons why that third statement is absolutely bedrock true. True at a fabric of creation level. Okay? So, so is it, how could it possibly be true that God wants you to spend all of your excess money on what you desire? Well, first of all, this is the way that God has built the world. God has built this world with a system of blessings and curses, of incentives and uh, disincentives, and the whole motivation for human activity is itself reward. We do stuff because we get stuff out of what we're doing. You can't ascend above that. You can't transcend it. Jesus didn't transcend it. Everything about the fabric of creation is built together with this concept of incentivized activity. We do stuff because we get stuff. It's not any more complicated than that, and you are not any more, uh, you're not capable of being any more 
altruistic than that. That's the way God has built the world. So, this shows up in some important areas. First of all, the worker must see that his work is benefiting him. The difference between mail-it-in, C-grade work, and hustling innovation and excellence has always been and will always be the amount of payoff the worker gets for rising above average work. If you remove the incentive for people to work harder than the average, if you remove the incentive for innovation, for instance, people will not work harder than the average. And we could show this to you if we simply opened up the books of, say, the federal workforce, where A work, B work, C work, it's not incentivized. You just show up, you move your little pile of work. If you do better than that, no one notices. If you do worse than that, maybe. If you do a lot worse than that, someone would notice. So this is fundamentally unjust. It is fundamentally unjust to remove this incentive from hard work. The Bible puts it this way. Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain. To do that is stupid because the ox is going to work less hard. And that's the assumption that the whole world is built upon. And so if a workforce, for instance, if a company fails to incentivize hard work or innovation, that's an unjust company. What the, and they're shooting themselves in the foot, of course, right? If they don't help employees understand that working harder, smarter, innovating more will wind up blessing them in return, then they're obviously shooting themselves in the foot, but they're actually being fundamentally unjust because God has built the world to communicate that message. That innovation and effort, that trying harder should come to something. It should matter. It should affect you personally. And of course, governments are famous for this. They're famous for disincentivizing work. Uh, So for instance, back in the 1950s, if you earned more than $200,000 a year, um, you paid 94% of whatever you earned above that $200,000 back in taxes. So if you made $200,000, you have pretty normal tax rates. I think it was somewhere around 50%. So you gave about half of what you earned back to the government. But then after that, if you, if you made over $200,000, you gave 94% of that income back to the government. Well, that's not incentivizing anyone, right, to, to, to go beyond. And, and the thing is, is that going beyond is always good. Like, trying is always good. Excellence is always good. Pursuing fruitfulness is always good. So, so, so this, this, this need that we have is God-built, that we see reward come in correspondence to our effort. And you would think that if, if that wasn't true, or if that, that was somehow God's compromise to deal with selfish people, then he would completely change the way he deals with Christians. But it isn't true. All of the Bible's teachings about efforts and pursuing Christ are always tied into the concept of reward. All of the promises related to seeking God are always connected to reward. This concept that we are supposed to see reward for our efforts is tied directly into our very understanding of faith. So in Hebrews 11, it says that without faith it's impossible to please God. For you must first believe that God exists, and then what? That he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
So what I'm saying is, is that one of the reasons why this statement, God wants you to spend all of your excess money on your desires, is true, is because it is God's plan. He's built it into both our biology and to the world itself, and into the very uh, fabric of Christian life, that we should do stuff to seek better stuff. We should be incentivized to do good things because we want to receive a reward. So that's number one. That's the way God's built the world. Number two, this is a common grace way for God to care for the poor. One of the things God is doing by creating this general sense of liberty that you get to do what you want with your discretionary income is he is providing for the poor through that same mechanism. So, if workers are incentivized to work harder because they're going to get more reward if they do, then they innovate. And when they innovate, they tend to help lots of people with those innovations. So we've gone through an industrial revolution, and it's the cool hipster thing to do to kind of poo-poo it, right? And we're getting back to building art- artisanal pencils. You know, uh, a guy, guy quits his job as a lawyer and makes six pencils a day and sells them each for $20. You know, like... Like, we're trying to undo the Industrial Revolution. The thing is, the idea of the Industrial Revolution and all the innovation that came out of it is that you take, you need less time to earn your daily bread than you ever have had before. So it used to be that you would need about 8 to 11 hours a day to coax enough calories out of the earth to feed yourself and your family. So that your whole life, that's what the word subsistence means, Your whole life is dependent on getting up and having the health to coax the calories you need out of the earth so that you could live another day. That's a one-to-one ratio of the amount of work you put in and the needs that you're meeting. That's a hard life. right? And that's the way most people have lived for most of the time that the earth has existed. When the Industrial Revolution came, which was a product of innovation, suddenly our time is freed up And we don't need nearly as much time to meet our needs. And this is where the idea of discretionary income becomes something we have to think about. And it's relatively new. It's a relatively new idea to be speaking to a room full of people who all have a lot of discretionary income. And even if you don't think you have a lot, and you might not have a lot compared to others, historically speaking, you've got a lot. It takes relatively little work for you to earn your daily bread. And the rest of that can be devoted to things like education and other things that make your future better. So one of the outpourings of incentivizing people to work hard is that they innovate. And when they innovate, they create stuff that makes it easier for everybody to live on the face of the earth. Uh, There's another level to this idea. When the earner is given freedom to spend his money on his desires, he buys stuff. And when he buys stuff, he creates jobs. When he puts in a new kitchen, for instance, he winds up hiring a bunch of people, not only to put in the new kitchen that he didn't need, by the way, but also the cabinets that were built and the paint that was made and so on and so forth. So one of the amazing things that God does through this general liberty of allowing people to spend their money on what they want is that even the most selfish person, the most consumeristic person, the most flaky person, winds up accidentally helping the poor 
simply as an overflow of his own consumerism and selfishness. It's kind of a great deal. It's not the ideal. That's not what we're shooting for. But as a baseline question of how the world should work, this whole concept of capitalism is not a bad thing. It just isn't. It's not the ultimate thing. But as far as a default for how the average person who doesn't love Jesus should live, it actually winds up helping people more than you might realize. So I've prepared some slides for you to see. This is, this is dramatic stuff. So I want you to see some of, the, some of the things that have happened as a result of this concept. This concept that people should have the freedom to spend the excess income they earn on whatever they desire has not been around very long. But if you look at the slides, do we have those slides? You can tell when it was introduced into the world. This is what they call the hockey stick slide. And this is the gross domestic product across the globe from the year 200 AD to the year 2000. And what you can see is that rather dramatically, when this concept of freedom to spend on what you desire was implemented in the world, the whole world took off in terms of its ability to earn and create. So the next slide shows you this. This is the global extreme poverty rate. So the World Bank measures extreme poverty by, I think it's like $1.50 a day, people living on less than $1.50 a day. And this shows you the, the data from people living on less than a dollar a day is that yellowish color. People living on less than $1.90 a day is the blue color, is the light blue color, the small strip over there. And then people living on less than $2 a day is the darker blue strip. What you see from 1820, which is right around the time of the Industrial Revolution, began to kind of creak, creak into motion. What you see is that across the world, not simply in the U.S., not simply among white people, not simply amongst the patriarchy, across the U.S., the global extreme poverty rates keep dropping. And they're dropping because of capitalism, which I am not saying is God's gift in the ultimate sense, but I'm saying as a, as a way to default, call a, as a default way of dealing with money, it kind of works. In fact, here's what I would say. If you think poverty is the problem, you should be a capitalist. If you think something more than poverty is the problem, like lack of Jesus, then you're going to have to add to that. But if you think only poverty is the problem, well, you know, look at the data. The next chart. This is people who are living in extreme poverty and people who are not. And the, the blue is the people who are not living in extreme poverty. So again, this goes counter to all of the anti-capitalistic narratives, which, by the way, capitalism is simply the freedom of a person to do with their money what they want to do with their money. And of course, all of the narratives you're hearing, or most of the narratives you're hearing, is saying that it oppresses people. It simply does not oppress people. The truth is, is that globally, this invention of liberty tied to excess income is blessing people more than it's hurting people. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But gosh, we've got 8 billion sinners that we're trying to deal with on the earth. And what's the best we can do? This is pretty good. So one of the reasons why God has associated freedom to excess income is because even if you are the most selfish human on the earth and you spend all of your excess income 
on toys and yachts and jet skis, those toys and yachts and jet skis are going to provide jobs to people who a hundred years ago were scratching their calories from the earth over the course of an 11-hour workday. Okay, so, so this is not a bad thing. God's built it into the world. It's actually doing some good. I don't know if we have another slide or not. Yes, these are the key markers of progress, the key markers of there's poverty, child mortality, illiteracy, pollution. All of these things are declining globally. Okay, so number one reason why this statement that I made that God wants you to spend all your excess income on your desires is because that's the way God's built the world. He's built you to feel a correlation between your hard work and the rewards that you receive. Number two reason is because as a default way of governing creation, this system works to help more people, especially when you believe that helping a poor person is fundamentally helping a poor person work. Number three, the number three reason why this statement is true, that God desires you to spend all of your excess money on your desires, is because in God's economy, he values desires more than donations. And this is key. And now we pivot into the theological. The world's economy values money. The poor are those who have little money. The rich are those who have lots of money. But God's economy values desire. And the poorest people in God's economy are those with the lowest desires. And the richest people in God's economy are those with the highest desires. God actually cares more about your desires than about your donations. He is in the desires business. So when I say God wants you to work to provide for your needs, if you work hard, you'll probably earn more than what you need. And God wants you to spend all of your excess money on your desires. I say at the end of that, and God cares a great deal about your desires. It's huge. God cares a great deal about your desires. When Paul was going around the known world, it's it's important to remember that every teacher we see in the New Testament really talks about money a great deal. And this is what I mean by, we've we've got to get back into balance. We've got to have more conversations about this. The the neglect is beginning to show up. Uh, But Paul... A lot of his ministry is dealing with money. He's, he's, he's doing a couple different things with money. The first thing is he's planting churches, and he's pastoring churches. And one of the things we see that when he goes to plant a church, he often does, is he provides for his own living rather than ask the church to meet his needs. He makes it clear that he could demand that the church meet his needs. But it says that instead of doing that, He would do ministry by day and night while also working with his hands by day and night, working way more than an eight-hour day to make sure that one important element of the financial uh, experience of these new believers was intact. And that was this. He did not want them to do anything they did not desire to do with their money. He could have commanded them to pry open their pocketbooks. He could have guilted them. He could have manipulated them. He could have been over there in the corner, sewing together tents, making loud sighs. Oh, I've 
I, I wrote the most important theological expansion inspired by God himself on the gospel today. And now I have to sew a tent together. Oh. But he didn't do that. Why not? Why not guilt money? Why not guilt money? Why not, why not, why not leverage people's obvious uncertainties and insecurities about what they spend their money on? Because what Paul cared about and what God cared about was that people gave because they desired to give. Another element of Paul's money life was that he wanted to raise money for the believers in Jerusalem who were going through both persecution and famine. And they were actually starving to death. This is actually need level. And as he's dealing with that, he's writing to each church, and we see the record of him talking to the churches as he's raising money in each church, and he's going to bring it to Jerusalem himself. And in 2 Corinthians 9, he says this, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that those in Achaia have already been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. You see the argument there for reward? If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. It's not saying, so give and don't care about what you get out of it. Not saying that at all. It's saying, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So the third reason why this statement is true, God wants you to spend all of your excess money on what you desire, is because he is in the desires business. He cares greatly about you doing what you do out of joyful exuberance and not out of guilt or manipulation. Friends, it's all a matter of perception, and we'll talk about this next week, because next week it's going to be all about how Jesus can change our desires. But it's all a matter of perception. One of the underlying presuppositions of the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 44 through 40, well, 42 through 45 is, these people gathered under the apostles' teaching because they desired to do so. These people partook of breaking the bread in fellowship because they desired to do that. They, they spent time in prayer together because they desired to do that. And they sold their possessions and gave them to the poor because they desired to do that. It's not a listing of a law. It's the delineation of desires. And those desires, by the way, are a bit intimidating. Right? Especially when we realize it wasn't because someone was telling them, do this, do this, do this. But rather because 
they saw these things as joys, as privileges. Here's the thing. Suppose you're walking down the street and you find an envelope and it says on the front, drug money. All right? This is an important part of the word picture. And you open it up, there's $500 in there. Now, you're not getting that money back to anybody. There's, what are you going to put on Craigslist? Found drug money. Call. You know. So that's your money. You know. It's untraceable. You're not going to get in trouble. The cartel's not going to show up at your front door. That's your money. All right. All of us have fairly individualized versions of what treating ourselves looks like with found money, with discretionary funds. Like somebody might go to the spa. You know, somebody might go buy another gun, right? There's just all sorts of versions of that. But what the instinctual response is, this money has been given to me and I'm going to go treat myself in X, Y, and Z. And here's the thing. Here's where God wants you to be. God wants you to get to the point where you think that the thing that would treat you the best, that would that you see as the ultimate luxury, would be to invest that money in, the, in eternity. And that you wouldn't feel any sort of uh, self-righteousness that, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm giving this money away. I'm not spending it on myself. But you would rather say, no, 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 no. I am spending this money on myself. I am treating myself right now. I'm engaged in a luxury right now. I'm, I'm allowing, I'm, I'm, I'm being able to use this excess money to, to bless myself, to give to myself. And what I mean by giving to myself is I, I get to invest this in the kingdom. It's my privilege. It's my joy. It's my desire. So the fourth reason why this statement, God wants you to spend all your excess money on your desires, is true, is that this is the way, the God-designed way, that God has provided for you to track and know what you desire. You have relative freedom right now to spend what you earn on what you desire. And that is not going to change. Unless we vote the wrong people. But no, that is not going to change. You're going to have some percentage of excess income that you don't need to supply your needs, and you're going to spend that on what you desire. So, And you've been doing that your whole life. So mentally scroll back through your credit card statements and examine what they show you. What do you desire as is revealed by your lifestyle? By what you spend your excess income on? Think of it this way. There's a discipline within law enforcement called forensic accounting. It's like CSI, but with math. I actually thought it would be really funny to do a whole TV show of forensic accounting in the CSI style, but it's all spreadsheets. That's all you see the whole time. So what forensic accountants do is they go through someone's financial life and they, they, they put together a story. They, they figure out kind of what motivated the person or what was going on or or if there was a, a financial impropriety committed, they, they sort all that out. So let's suppose I hired a, let's suppose one of you lived to a ripe old age and passed away, and I missed you. And I felt like I never really got to know you as well as I'd like. And so uh, I hire a forensic accountant, and I say, I want you to go through the Smith's budget and all their expenditures. 
And I just want you to go through there, and I want you to tell me by looking at, at, at what they spent their money on, what they desired out of life, what was important to them. I want you to show me their desires. Do you know, this is, I'm taking a risk here, but I, I think it's an educated risk. Here's what I think they would come back and say. We looked at every dollar they spent from their 20s until the day they died in order to answer your question about what they desired. And our conclusion is they didn't desire anything with real intensity or focus. Intensely focused individuals live unbalanced, oddball lives. They choose to miss out on things in order to put all their resources into one particular area. And as we did a forensic accounting workup of these people, we found, I mean, yeah, they had some priorities, but no real passions. They didn't spend their money on anything in an unbalanced or passionate way. We can do a forensic accounting on a drug addict and see that they had a passion. We can do a forensic accounting on a, on a, on a professional cyclist and see that they had this passion by looking at all the receipts for gear. But this family you've asked us to audit reveals no real passions. Just a kind of unexamined, unfocused life like a leaky fire hose. There's plenty of discretionary income in their life, but it was never focused on accomplishing or achieving one big thing. Sure, there are some tepid commitments to comfort and convenience, but even there, they weren't even fully obsessed with that. They really weren't passionate about anything. They weren't obsessed with anything. They, they never focused their money in one direction. I think that's very likely what would be said of most of our financial lives as a forensic accountant traced his way through our thousands and thousands of decisions. We basically live untamed lives like a garden hose with a bunch of puncture wounds all throughout its length. And that what comes out at the end is not sufficient enough to do anything big or glorious. And that's, I think, what Proverbs twenty nine eighteen is saying. Where there is no prophetic vision, no deep passion, no clear, fierce desire... You're just going to be a leaky garden hose. And the story of your finances over time will probably not say anything except that you kind of did your whole life without examining whether you should be about something big and radical. So there's this quote I read this week. It says, Mediocrity is invisible until passion shows up and exposes it. Mediocrity is invisible until passion shows up and exposes it. Well, that's really what happens when we see Acts 2, 44 through 45. The mediocrity of our financial lives shows up, right? That's, that's, that's sort of what stings. It's like this whole unexamined sort of dispassionate leaky garden hose thing. So, at closing, I, last week we discussed one ratio, and we're going to carry this conversation into next week. But 
Last week we discussed one ratio, and that was uh, the, the amount of money we devote toward our needs versus the amount of money we devote toward our, our desires. But I want to introduce a second ratio today, and that is the amount of time we spend earning discretionary income and the amount of time we spend getting more discernment. You know, the more discretionary income you have, the more discretion you're supposed to have. And discretion is just the idea of, of having some clarity about what's important and what's not. It's about being able to delineate desires. It's about being able to say, this is more important than that, and so on and so forth. And here's what I think happens over time. And again, we'll talk more about this next week. Over the course of our lives, our discretionary income increases, but we do not take seriously our need to grow in the biblical vision, in a prophetic vision, for what could be done with our increase in resources. And so, you know, it's great. I I want you to work hard. I want you to innovate. I want you to earn more as a result. That would be the just thing for innovation and working hard. I want your excess income to increase. But here's what's going to happen. It's happened to me. It's happened to just everybody. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to spend your life earning discretionary income and spend relatively little time with your face in God's word asking, now give me discretion and discernment to know what to do with this. And because you don't do that, and I haven't done that, because that's not what we do, we just follow the pattern of this world. We just run wild. And most of our budgets look like bedheads. And they will. There won't be any clear shape or definition or, or force or direction because unless we go and get the prophetic vision we need for our finances, we're just going to let it all bleed off like a punctured garden hose. Well, next week we've got our work cut out for us, but we're out of time today. So let me pray for us and then introduce the Lord's table. Gracious God, building a prophetic vision, a a vision that comes from your word about the world of finances uh, requires humility and sincerity. And so, Lord, I I pray that you'd please give that to us in spades as we think about this over the next week or so. Father, you're so faithful and gracious and kind, and it's, it's, I think, refreshing, but also challenging to realize that you don't really care about the money. You care about what we desire, about what we love, about what we want out of this life, about what we consider to be a reward or a luxury. We're really concerned about those things. Please work in our hearts today and this week as we consider what we really do desire, what we're really after. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Philippians 2 says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 